Hi, this is Greg Voison, inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth podcast, number 885, with Dr. Wes Ely about his new book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, a critical care doctor on healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. This podcast, number 885, is brought to you by Ed Frauenheim, co-author with Ed Adams, of a new book entitled Reinventing Masculinity, The Liberating Power of Compassion and Connection. If you want to become liberated, you will want to listen to the podcast with author Ed Frauenheim. This book, Reinventing Masculinity, is a guide for the reader to better understand how to reinvent themselves and to reduce or eliminate any struggle you might have and learn how to make sense of how to be a good man, spouse, and father. If you want to learn more about the book and the authors, please visit their website at www.reinventingmasculinity.com. That's www.reinventingmasculinity.com. You can also download a free chapter of their book from this website. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my interview with Dr. Wes Ely about his new book entitled Every Deep Drawn Breath, A Critical Care Doctor on Healing, Recovery, and Transforming Medicine in the ICU. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And we have Dr. Wes Ely on the line with us. And we've that beautiful plant in the corner, he just put back up there so we could have him something wonderful to look at. And he's got a new book out that actually came out September 7th uh, called Every Deep Drawn Breath, a, a critical care doctor on healing, recovering, and transforming medicine in the ICU intensive care unit. Well, Dr. Ely, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with my listeners, many of them in the healthcare profession, uh, and many of them probably wanting to learn more about what you have to say, your nonprofit as well. So I want to let them know a little bit about you as an internist, uh, pulmonologist, uh, and critical care physician. Uh, Dr. Ely earned his MD at Tulare University uh, School of Medicine in conjunction with a master's in public health. He serves on the Grant W. Little Endowed Chair in Medicine and is a physician, scientist, and tenured professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also the Associate Director of Aging Research for the Tennessee Valley Veterans Affairs uh, Generic not generic, (laughs) Uh, research, education, and uh, clinical uh, center. He is the founder and co-director of the Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship Center. Uh, And we will put a link to that, Dr. Ely, uh, for everyone to go to, because there's some wonderful videos up there. I was just watching a few of them. And the organization is dedicated to research and ongoing care for patients and families affected by critical illness. Um, He also has numerous studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, and his writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, and numerous other publications, and he lives in Nashville. Well, quite a bio uh, and quite something to speak about here because many of the listeners may not know about this issue, but obviously COVID has been something that has exacerbated uh, the challenges associated with the numbers of people in ICU. And you write in the beginning of your book 
that you mentioned that as a young ICU doctor, you went to extreme lengths and your sole focus was on saving lives. Uh, You then state that in so doing, you sometimes sacrifice the patient's dignity and cause harm. Um, What is it that has happened? I was watching some of the videos since about, it looked about like uh, 2007, 2008 in that range that changed ICUs because I was listening to some of the patients, a young man who was shot in the stomach uh, that came into ICU and was in there, a a little boy, another woman with a kidney failure. Uh, I actually listened to all of those very carefully. And the reality is things have changed over time. So what have you learned about patients inside ICU and what happens to them when they survive and they come back out again? Sure. Th- thanks, Greg, for having me on. And thanks to your listeners. Uh, that was, uh, it, to my mind, too much about me. I am a widget. I am not, I- I'm nothing special in this regard, but I do view myself as a widget to try and improve the care and reduce the suffering of other people. And I hope the listener will take home some thoughts about their own ability to advocate both for themselves and for other people by what they're about to hear on this podcast. And Greg, I want your listeners to know, too, that this book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, is is two things. One, it's not a memoir. This book is not about me. And secondly, it's I'm not making a penny off this book. This book is not to make me any money. It is all of the net proceeds, 100%, are going back to patients and families. We want to, it's, they're their stories in the book. They have given of themselves for me to tell their story as a tribute to lift them up and to lift up medicine and get a rehumanization of yeah. the way that we approach care of our patients. And so to me, the reader is going to this book, whether you're medical or non-medical. I wrote it for a non-medical audience so that every person can come there and find their heart on these pages and just say, do I love other people? Yes. If I love them, how can I serve them when they get sick and have unexpected things happen in their life? That's what every deep drawn breath is really about. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's loaded with stories. I mean, every page has another story and it's great because it kind of allows the reader to read this more like actually even as a novel, right? It's kind of like, hey, I can, I can get drawn into the story of what happened, but we learn from stories. Let's face it. That is how people learn. Um, right. And, you know, and the, so- reason I, the reason I wrote this book actually is because I realized that no manner of science me publishing in the New England Journal, JAMA, or Lancet was actually getting the job done enough to make change occur fast enough. So your original question to me was, what have I learned from these patients, Greg? And what we learned was that back in the 1990s, early 2000s, we had all these people deeply sedated in the ICU and immobilized. We made a ton of progress between 2000 and 2020 with all these studies I told you about, which are unfolded in the in the book via via story, via human beings' lives. But then when COVID hit, we went backwards 20 years. I mean, just a crazy reversal of fortune, if you will, back into the 1990s in that in the COVID ICU, we had this horrendous amount of over-sedation, immobilization, and the patient suffered, the family suffered, And we as healthcare professionals suffered such that 
tons of people are quitting their vo- their chosen vocation. We're losing 20 nurses a month here at Vanderbilt, uh, even going up in their salaries and everything. We can't keep them because they're so burnt because this depersonalization occurred. And what every deep drawn breath is calling us to is how do we as people come together to make eye contact, hold hands and see one another, even in the midst of severe critical illness in a modern day technologically driven ICU situation? Well, you know, you I think partially and I have another question, but this is a question before the question. You know, you kind of fight the battle of administration. You know, I work with Quint Studer, the Studer Group, and also he does a lot of work with hospital administration. And, you know, obviously on the outside of this, there's the professionals, nurses, doctors who want to give great care. Now, on the other hand, there's these all these administrators worried about liability. Uh, And, you know, when you look at liability, it's it's the whole thing around the fear of of what could happen. You know, am I going to be sued? Is this going to happen? Um, and I get that, but they haven't found or seem to have found. And the reason I say this, and I speak from personal experience, I lost two brothers, not from COVID last year. I'm so okay. sorry, Greg. Um, and there were only four of us. So there's only oh. two left. So the reality is, you know, getting into the hospital even to see them or seeing them on a ventilator or doing the things that we'd like to do, was just such a challenge. I mean, what comment would you make about this balance between how administration runs a hospital and how the healthcare workers with inside the hospital would maybe like to see it differently? Sure. Well, let me do, let me use story. So I remember in COVID that I was caring for because you said your brothers died before COVID, right? No, no, during. But the during reality COVID, is they COVID. they they were not from COVID. Okay, that's what that's what it is. So in the exact same scenario, I remember during COVID, I had a patient who had an autoimmune disease, not COVID, and she desperately needed her family. She needed her mother and her father. She was she was a young woman. All right. And she became, to my knowledge, the first person at Vanderbilt University who had a visitor after the initial phases of COVID when we were afraid and shut down hospital visitation to everyone so that everybody was suffering. Even if you didn't have COVID, you were affected by the pandemic, of course. Uh, The reason I tell the story in answer to your question is that it took a lot of mental wrangling and uh, voice and arguments to get me on the same page with the administration to say, this is not an option for this woman. Her actual medical care requires her mother at the bedside. In other words, the family is not a luxury. They're part of the treatment plan. Right, right. Well, I like how you put that, and you did that very diplomatically. And and fortunately, uh, we were able to go in and see one of my brothers during the process. So it it really did help a lot. It helped him make his transition easier. And I I think, you know... um, in our finitude, you know, when you think about our finitude, whether it was from COVID or whatever, the reality is, is hundreds of thousands of families died not being next to the people by their bedside. And those bodies, as you know, ended up uh, then going to the morgue. And then basically, because of COVID, 
uh, not having the kind of closure they needed. So there's a lot of people out there without closure. I speak to them all the time. Um, I do a lot of interviews around books like this. But, you know, you tell a lot of interesting patient stories in the book. And one of that set the stage uh, for what happens to patients that were admitted to the ICU and survived. And we're Eric, talking about... Greg, before you tell that story, before you ask about this particular story, there's two things happening in my head. Do you mind if I okay. share them? No, go ahead. Okay. One is that you talked about people dying and the bodies going to the morgue. One thing I want the listeners to know is that through an NIH-funded investigation, we are now actually getting volunteers who donate their brains to us, and we're studying the brains of COVID and non-COVID survivors to understand differences between what happens to the brains in critical illness versus critical illness plus COVID. And the reason we're doing that is that one of the downsides of critical illness is that people get an acquired dementia. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the PICS syndrome, post-intensive care syndrome, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Um, but but long COVID, which everybody is, is on everybody's mind because it's the right. suffering that goes on months after COVID infection, PICS plus long COVID is the worst form of this pandemic-induced nightmare that people people incur. And so we're studying that. And I just want the listeners to know. Secondly, I want them to know that that one way that we're combating this immense loneliness that makes people you know, suffer even greater, both the families and the patients when they're not together, is that we have a, a safety program called the A2F bundle. And I know we'll come back to that as well, but the safety bundle called the ABCDEF bundle, F in this A2F bundle is family. And so we are fighting to have the family there at the bedside and have them have us not break that important connection between the two. And this is critical during the dying process as well as during the living process. So I just want to put that out there. Uh, I think it's, I think it's important that you say that. I mean, it's a very important factor that you're studying the brain, you're studying these long-term effects of COVID. Um, you know, if you look in history, how people died and you go back because I did an interview with a physician from New York about her book finitude, and like you, been studying a lot of patients for a long period of time and an ICU doctor as well. And, you know, she said in this book that if you go back to the 1500s, 1600s, when people would die at home, uh, which is where most people want to die. Today, 97% of the people die in a hospital. That's not really where they want to die because they're really sitting in ICU, right? right? It, it, a lot of this happens in your territory and you, you are very well aware of this. And I think it was really a telltale sign um, that, uh, about what she said, uh, you know, with the families being around them, obviously medicine wasn't as advanced as it was, but the reality is that the process was uh, so much more humane, seemed humane, much more humane. Um, so let me get to this story about Richard Lungford or Langford, okay, sure. the minister, um, you know, he was admitted, he survived. Would you re just mind relaying the story to the audience and an endeavor to articulate what can happen to a patient who survives from a stay in the ICU? I mean, uh, I, sure. you know, I've seen, I have friends who had delirium, dementia. One of my friends just died. He fell jogging and hit his head and you know, same thing. He was having some delirium. Um, so I'd like for you to address this because it's a big thing. And there's also another factor. Uh, Dr. Steve Berman was on here, Healing Beyond Pills and Potions. And he talked about um, 
what happens when the brain swells with the water? You 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 get that hydrocephalus, hydro, yeah. right? Yeah. There was a, a New England Journal of Medicine study done, and many of these patients who have dementia, actually, they found when they put the stent in, they literally they relieved that condition and they saved their lives. And I thought that was pretty fascinating uh, because of that. I'm I hope I'm saying it's right, hydrocephalus. But uh, the point is, is that I didn't know the correlation. I had no correlation, but Steve was reading a, a JAMA article that somebody did, and literally uh, they started checking these patients, and they were like, wow, there's a direct correlation between what's going on. We just thought they had dementia. We just thought that they were, you know, had Alzheimer's. But in reality, their gait had changed. This is, I'm getting off the subject here, but because I think it's important to my listeners, somebody's gait changes, they're not walking right, they're doing something. And they're not thinking properly, and you think they have Alzheimer's. You might want to think about checking that. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, let's go back to the beginning of your story. Uh, your question about Richard Langford. So, yeah, listener, survived. Th- this guy is uh, has a, has a fascinating story. He's featured in every deep drawn breath, one of the many patients, and he was a, a fairly young man in his fifties who was a minister. Right. Um, had memorized thousands and thousands of Bible quotes, et cetera. He could recite them at will. He became a missionary in Africa. He worked with the World Health Organization and he needed an elective knee repair because his tennis game was off. Unfortunately, after the very routine procedure, he aspirated, developed sepsis and ended up on the ventilator for 10 days. And afterwards, he was completely changed. His life never did get back to its previous circumstance. He ended up having to retire early. He ends up living with his mother for the next 20 years. And he comes to our support groups every week at the SIBS Center, C-I-B-S, Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction Survivorship Center. You can find our work at at, at icudelirium.org, icudelirium.org. Richard, let Let me put a plug in. This book, is worth the resources in the back of it. Even if you didn't read anything else and all you got was the resources. Plus, I just want to say this, the books that inspired you to write this book, I was reading the list and I'm looking at, you know, Brene Brown and all the other people that you were reading. And I see all the books stacked up on your desk, like mine. This one is is fake behind me, but I, I, I literally have 1,500 something books. But I'm just going to put a plug in. Thank you. When you Mike, buy this I book, very hard on the resources. There's, you, a, there's a whole resources section back there, which is a basically a how-to manual for patients and families. Yeah. Anyway, so go on uh, with so, uh, Doctor with Langford. So, so Richard, story. Richard's IQ drops dramatically by a couple of standard deviations, and the way his daughter describes it is, and this is after just a 10-day ICU stay. So he never had a stroke. He never coded. He just had sepsis and was on a ventilator and got a lot of sedation. That was it. And we see this in thousands and thousands of people. His daughter says, and this is in the book, um, it's like a master chess player looking at a chess set who knows the pieces and knows that he knows how to play, but can't even remember the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the mind jumble that many thousands of people find themselves in after critical illness. And in contrast, Greg, to the story you told a moment ago about the person with hydrocephalus who got the drain, 
That's a focal physical thing that can be treated. And I'm glad you used that example. These patients instead have a global injury over their whole brain, which is millions and millions of neurons dying during their critical illness, dying from what? Dying from micro blood clots, dying from overuse of sedatives, which have neurotoxicity like benzodiazepines specifically, or overuse of propofol even, which is the Michael Jackson drug. And also dropping oxygen counts. And then just, you know, the brain bone is connected to the body bone. So immobilizing the body for days on end actually affects the brain. These mm. things are all connected. Mm. And so that's what happened to Richard Langford. It was a, it's, it's super sad, but it is not rare. It's extremely common. And that is part of what I want the audience to know about so that they can do what? They can advocate Proactive. for their, their loved one being awake mobilize, getting out of the bed as soon as possible. And what I call getting back to the land of the living. I, I, you know, I saw that in the videos and I saw the people that actually were having treatment that way and the differences that it made versus the ones you compare and contrast who in the olden days didn't do that. Right. Um, and you tell this really compelling story about responding to a code blue with one of your patients. Um, you proceed to explain that Dr. Chin was already in there. Uh, fierce attempts to ins- insert uh, the ventilator. Uh, couldn't find the airway. It was blocked. Put the head back. I mean, I was reading the story with with much um, interest. Can you tell the story and what you believe is wrong with critical care medicine and what needs to change about the culture of critical care? Sure. You know, what happened that day was Dr. Chen, my attending physician, was trying to place an endotracheal tube, a plastic tube down into the trachea so that we could then attach this patient onto the ventilator, which has become so common in COVID. And what happened was that he couldn't get that tube down into that airway. The patient was getting bluer and bluer. The oxygen levels were dropping more and more. CPR had been interrupted just to get this done. So the patient's having no blood flow because their heart's not beating during this time. And it's extremely harrowing to watch this occur, especially during COVID, because the SATs drop even more precipitously. And it's just it's just very scary. Now, you asked, what about critical care needs to change? Well, that scenario I just described is always going to be there in critical care. What what's happening, though, is that we tend to extend that emergency kind of depersonalization out into the following hours and days. And we, we take patients and imagine this, imagine a hundred people coming in with critical illness. They all have, they're all in color. They all have their own loves, their likes, their dislikes, they, they, their favorite music, their favorite food, uh, their pets, their pets names. Imagine if you took all that color and humanization and ran everybody through a depersonalization chamber. And the other side, it was just tones of gray. Everybody looks the same. Everybody's on a ventilator. Everybody's quiet, unconscious, in a coma, unable to speak. And I don't know who they are and I can't find out who they are. That's what unfortunately has occurred way too often in the ICU. And what I am advocating for here is for use of this A2F bundle, the ABCDEFs, which is really, you know, A is analgesia, an approach to pain control. B is both stopping the ventilator and stopping drugs every day. C is choosing drugs other than benzodiazepines, which are so dangerous. 
D is paying attention to delirium. E is early mobilization and getting somebody out of the bed. And F is having family at the bedside. And what I'm saying is that this approach, this A to F bundle, we've studied this now in about three to 400 papers in over 30,000 patients. And we know that it reduces death, reduces length of stay, improves the likelihood of getting out of the ICU and hospital faster with less likelihood of going to a nursing home, going home instead. But how many hospitals have adopted your kind of your philosophy? I mean, if you go across the country and you say, hey, look, we have lots of ICUs. How many have the A2F bundle that you're talking about? Because your your nonprofit has done all this research and study and you personally, right? Yes. And you're advocating this approach. Um, Can you say that this has been widely accepted now? Well, we've done, a, we've, I can go better than just the United States. We've done surveys across about 30 countries in the, in the world. We have this translated into about 35, 40 languages. And I would say that around 60 to 65% of hospitals have done this to some degree. The question, Greg, is how much have they done it? So if there's right. six steps, and by the way, this safety bundle is kind of like, think of your pilot trying to get you from LA to New York. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no way that pilot is going to get on the airplane and get you across the country safely unless they go through their safety checklist. Correct. All this is, is at the bedside, I as a doctor, the nurse, and the family discuss these steps of making sure that every day, Betty and Bobby get these safety steps so that they can have a higher chance of survival and survival more completely. If about two-thirds of hospitals have done it, but if they only do it half the way, then we don't get full implementation of the steps. You could just do half the steps. And what we've proven, and this is really fascinating, you know, in all of science, the most consistent proof of truth is a dose response, meaning that if something is is done 20%, 60%, 90%, and you see that the efficacy goes up as you step up your game, then that's a dose response. Mm-hmm. Or if you give a drug and the drug is very good and two milligrams is improved when you go to four and improved when you go to six, that's a very... Uh, very uh, strong evidence of proof. Well, we have dose response proof in in 21,000 patients that we studied in the Sutter Health System in California. And then the Society of Critical Care Medicine studied this in 80 ICUs across the United States, including Puerto Rico. And we found beautiful dose response that as you go from 20 to 40 to 60 to 80% compliance with the bundle, you see increasing drops in death, increasing drops in length of stay, increasing uh, reductions in delirium, coma, and also, uh, as I said, a higher likelihood of going to, to home instead of a nursing home. So that really makes it convincing. And I think we've got some implementation, but we've got some work to do. It's one of the reasons that I want families and patients to come into the hospital saying, wait a minute, we know about this new approach in the ICU. We want our loved one to get this approach rather than just days and days of heavy sedation and immobilization. You know, as this country ages, and this is a question around aging, because, you know, many of your patients that end up in the ICU and the biggest medical care costs for the most part are as people are aging out Uh, their seventies, their eighties, their nineties, they're coming in to ICU, something happens. Um, And you know, you talked about here the basic principles of human caring. That was part something you mentioned in the book, uh, which includes that less sedation. Um, 
What do you find about this particular population? Because if this population is, uh, according to the U.S. government, it's the largest percentage of Medicare bills, it's the largest percentage of anything, you know, when you have medical insurance and you get to those ages, that's when stuff starts to happen, right? But it doesn't have to happen. And you have some tips in the book, too, and I want you to mention those about things to keeping your brain active. Um, you know, I've had Dr. Daniel Amen on here talking about the brain is always listening. Uh, there's all kinds of research out there. And I want you to talk about both, you know, this aging population, how you can care for them better, how they can care for themselves better, and these basic principles of human caring. Sure. Well, I, it's great that you talk about aging. I was trained by one of the fathers of geriatrics, whose name was Bill Hazard. He was at Hopkins and then trained me years later. And we shared a wall for a year as I was his assistant chief of medicine. And Bill always said to me, Wes, put on a lens on your camera to look at the aging of our population and how they might require different care. And what I want to tell you, Greg, and the listeners is that older people have the same risks. They're just nearer to disaster from them. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that they are more likely to develop the delirium, more likely than to suffer the consequences of a dementia after the delirium. And for the listener, delirium is that acute mind cloudiness during illness. And the dementia is the long, insidious, usually slow in onset thing like Alzheimer's disease, but which gets zipped up in even a matter of 10 to 20 days after a profound ICU stay. So if they're nearer to disaster, how do we handle that? Well, two things. One, we are very, very diligent about attending to their need to get out of the bed every day, to be working with them to clear their brain. We actually have a mnemonic called the Dr. Dre. And Dr. Dre is a famous <laughs> rapper who has the Beats earbuds. Yeah. And so Dr. Dre means that when we're at the bedside of an old or a young person, but again, it's more you know problematic for the elderly and they're delirious or confused, we say, well, let's run the Dr. Dre. And it stands for Diseases, Drug Removal, and Environment, D-D-R-E. So we ask ourselves, what diseases are creating this, this delirium? What drugs should be removed, like benzodiazepines, Benadryl, certain antibiotics, other sedatives, et cetera? And then what about the environmental things? And the environmental things for the elderly are very important. <clears throat> Sensory deprivation leads to delirium. So if you can't see clearly, if you can't hear well, you need your eyeglasses, you need your hearing aids. I'll tell you a story. I had a a patient named John. He was in the ICU. We were still very close friends. And he usually reads presidential biographies. He was reading a book about uh, FDR. And every day I was in there with him, he wasn't reading the book. And I kept asking him, John, why aren't you reading your biography? He was recovering from a heart attack. And He said, well, my glasses are broken, but don't worry, my wife's going to bring them in. And on the third day, he started getting delirious, profoundly delirious. Mm. And I I thought, wow, he's he's getting septic. He's getting uh, sick again. So I did the Dr. Dre and I thought diseases, maybe he's getting infected and septic. Then I looked at his drug list and then environment. I thought, oh, my gosh, he still doesn't have his glasses. So just the E, just reminding myself to run the Dr. Dre. I I took my, my own readers out of my pocket and gave them. I said, John, Use these glasses today. He was delirious. He wasn't making sense. So I didn't even think he'd follow that. The next morning, I kid you not, I walked in the room and John had on my readers reading the FDR biography. He said, Dr. Ely, let me tell you what FDR did when he was threatened by, 
you know, yada, yada, World War II, chapter and verse, his brain was clear as a bell. It was only that he had sensory deprivation. So these are the things we can do acutely. And I'll leave the reader with one more thing long-term. When they incur a dip in cognitive function that lasts weeks and months after critical illness, remember Sudoku and Scrabble. Okay. Numbers, math, words. So if you put your arm in a crossword puzzles, crossword puzzles, (laughs) if you put your arm in a cast and you take the arm out of the cast six weeks later, it's atrophied. It's smaller, right? Than the other one. Well, you have to exercise that arm to build it back up again. Well, that's what we have to do with the brain. We have to give it exercises. And after it's incurred a delirious episode and is now, and now having some deficits, memory, executive function, et cetera, we can get that back again and we use brain games to do it. It could be computer games, but it could just be words and what word jumbles or Sudoku and Scrabble. Well, Wes, that is a great story, which leads me to this Ray, is it Fugate? Ray Fugate. Fugate. A COVID patient that was showing signs of delirium, because you were speaking about delirium just now, as a result of low oxygen levels. Now, you know, a lot of people went out and bought oxygen meetings, meters during COVID. Stick them on your fingers, see what your pulse is, see how much oxygen you're taking in, because there was obviously a serious issue going on and still is. What are, and you talked about these long-term effects of, of COVID. Uh, I don't think we got into it, but what are some of the lingering effects in particular with this patient and having contracted COVID? Yeah, great. So Ray, Ray was in the ICU with COVID and he was very delirious. We think that this is from, in this case, again, you know, diseases like COVID, also blood clotting in COVID, dropping oxygen levels in COVID. Actually, I have a mnemonic called F-COVID, like we hate COVID. So F-COVID, <laughs> yeah. those are the causes of delirium. And it's, it's, uh, it's <laughs> family absence and isolation. Yeah, big Yeah, right. And then COVID itself, because it causes the virus itself. And then oxygenation, that's F-C-O-V, V is the virus, I said. And then uh, drugs, um, I think I mentioned them all. That's it, you got it. You got got the whole thing. So And so he had all those causes. And when he developed days on end of the delirium, his wife, even though his wife, we got his wife there, she was at the bedside, we addressed all the, the, the Dr. Dre stuff. But weeks later, Ray was having tremendous problems with his, th- with his thinking. And he was a high school principal and needed to get back to you know, his job. And the way that we did it was that, that Shelly, his wife, worked with him day in, day out. And I have permission to use their names, by the way. They're in the book. Um, worked with him day in, day out, exercising his brain and putting him on a program, basically, of an hour to hour and a half a day of brain exercises broken up into three parts. And he got all the way back to where he wanted to be. He's living a very full and fruitful life. It took months. And I asked people to put their patient's cap on because it's going to be, you know, it's, they don't, they don't get sick in a day. They're not going to get better in a day. It's a long process, but we have hope. And we want to leave the reader, the listener here with a lot of hope for their recovery and for getting their life back after critical illness. That's the main thing is don't lose hope because there is a, a great path towards getting your life back even after profound COVID and ICU stays. Well, you do a great job in this book of telling him. And I, there's a personal story in here. I want to make sure I get in before we end. And that's about your daughter, Taylor. And 
Um, you know, you're out by the pool. She does a flip and she hits her head. And obviously this is a very personal story. And I think it's a good story for the listener to hear. What did the accident that Taylor had teach you about being a more masterful ICU physician, because you have such a passion for this. And I'm not certain if this wasn't the impetus for uh, your desire to want to drive you to do this. I'm just, I'm just guessing, but I have a son who has chronic myelogenous leukemia. So I get to deal with his constant ongoing medications and what's happening with him as well. So uh, any correlation there? Sure. You know, there's a reason why, Taylor's story is chapter six in the book. It's right at the turning point of a 12 chapter book. And it was a turning point for me. I sat on the left side of that bed. Normally doctors stand on the right of the bed. If you ever thought about that before, but that's by convention. We do that. We stand on the right and we examine from the right. In this case, I was on the left side waiting for the neurosurgeons to come in. And I realized that in a sense, they weren't coming in regularly. They weren't teaching me what was going on. There was a form. I was kind of silenced as her father, and Taylor was silenced. And in a way we call, this is a form of testimonial injustice. And I sat there in the bed thinking, oh my gosh, I have done this to so many other people. You know, it's kind of like that that uh, Pogo thing. We have seen the enemy and he is us. You know, I, I, I'm guilty here. And so I had to work through my own shame and, uh, and, and guilt over the fact that I had committed a form of testimonial injustice in silencing other patients and their families. And I became, I vowed that I would not do that anymore to people. And that is what led me to develop yeah. the A2F bundle. So right. you're right. It was the pivot point for me in my life. And I realized that, that I have a covenant with my patients and families that I don't want to break. It's a promise to uplift them and to magnify their dignity. And, and this is important. Every human being is priceless and no amount of disease reduces the value of a person by an iota. Every person is priceless, no matter how much disease they've got. And it's my job to make sure that they know that, to make sure they feel priceless and to lift them up through their illness, whether they're going to survive or not. And that's what Taylor's illness helped me to get committed to. And that's the purpose of every deep drawn breath. I could tell that. And I want to just acknowledge you for the the work that you're doing, um, how you're helping the public, the book. And I always like to leave with one last question, and I'll leave the, you with this, that I would like for you to answer. You know, we've talked about a lot of stories. We've talked about COVID. We've talked about delirium. We've talked about many different things during this last 40 minutes. But what are the, you also at the end of this book say, hey, there's things you can do uh, to make yourself better. In other words, if I'm not in the ICU, what are some of the things that you would give our audience or leave a couple of tips if they do happen to go into ICU that they would tell their family or they would give some advice so that the stay there is the kind of stay you would like to see them have? Okay, number one. And number two, you talked about the crossword puzzles and you talked about the Scrabble and the other kind of things that people should do. Some of the things they can do to keep their brains, um, you know, very, very active and to kind of prevent from some of these things that could happen. Sure. Well, we've talked about some of the 
practical things like the yeah. brain games and, and brain recovery. So I'm going right. to end on this note instead, because it is the core piece of all of this. Central to all of our humanness, I think, sits love, love of each other. And what I want the reader, the listener to know about how they can do a better job for themselves or their loved ones is basically the human connection. Martin Buber talks about the I-thou, this relationship between the I and the thou, Mm -hmm. and um, between I and you. And what, what I think goes awry in critical illness is that we break down this relationship when the family is not present or they don't speak up for their loved one or the patient themselves are kept sedated for too long and we don't see who they are. So how can you overcome that? Well, one way is to come in the room instead of saying what's the matter with the patient, say what matters to the patient. Switch that preposition from with to to. What matters to this person? And if everybody does it, the family, the, the doctor, the nurse, we all say, what matters to John lying in that bed there? Uh, th- then we have to say, well, OK, well, how can we organize our, our job today to lift this person up in accordance with what matters to John? And that, to me, becomes the core thing. So um, some days that means that we have to be very selfless and maybe not push what we want you know, the families might say, well, I want you to do all these procedures, all these therapies, because I've got to have them live. But sometimes we actually need to shift our goals over to palliation of symptoms rather than cure. And there are times in critical illness where we need to usher in great palliative care to reduce suffering during a dying process instead of pushing with that, that extra intervention, which you know, might have a 1% chance of working, but it doesn't fit with what the patient really values and wants. Does that help? That helps a lot. And I, and I think the fact that, you know, you, you can, um, that the uh, families can get involved in that and advocate for a loved one is really important. I think many people are very passive. They think the doctors have all the answers, the nurses have all the answers, and they just kind of sit there with the patient. But I think the key is that they do have an option and they can let their voice be heard. And I think if anything, that's important. And they need to understand that if the physicians are at the point of palliative care, that it's really important that you do listen to what they have to say, because many people will fight that. They're going to say, no, no, I, you know, we got to save the patient at all costs. And I, and I just want to say to you and to my listeners, Go pick this 336 page book up. It's a great book. Uh, and if you, if uh, during that you don't get anything out of one of the stories, that's crazy because there's so many stories in here. Also, <laughs> you know, we're going to, I'm, I'm available on Twitter at, at Wes Ely MD, just at Wes Ely MD. And if, if people feel so motivated and they want to leave a review on Amazon to draw other people towards this story, I just want the word to get out to other people. And that would be beautiful and helpful. Oh, and and you also, it's icudelirium.org. And I want to let everybody go there. Uh, Make a donation because the work that you're doing through your nonprofit is really, really valuable and important work, not just to COVID patients, all ICU patients in the study of the brain and what's going on. And uh, Dr. Ely, blessings to you. Namaste. Thank you for being on with me and spending some time with uh, my listeners. Thank you so much. It's been my privilege.